This is one of the first episodes in Star Trek history to really focus on non-main characters as the main cast for this specific episode. In this case, Miss Loxana Troy and Alexander Rojenko. I actually find that interesting in its own right, because this is something that is still isn't actually done all that often, has not been done all that often, and yet tends to be a memorable episode. It's also the last episode Holm was in, and uh, now I guess I'm going to go ahead and tell you a story. See, this is a breather episode, right? It's an episode all about Loxana and Alexander. You could argue very strongly it's actually all about Loxana. And if I might be so bold, that was the correct decision, in my opinion. To make it about her, I mean. With him as kind of the orbital character. Oh, don't mistake me, Alexander's acceptable enough, but he's also a kid, as in an actual child actor. And making an episode leaning on a child actor is just asking for disaster. But this was written by Peter Allen Fields, who knows what he's doing, and it kind of shows. So instead, Alexander is mostly there as an aspect of her character. So in short, this episode is all about Loxana Troy. I think this is the official moment in which I started liking her as a character. As I've actually talked about over on D Space Nine, she's fine on D Space Nine. Like she's she's much more tolerable and interesting, and has some legitimately great moments with several characters, notably Odo. But here, she's weirdly cool. <laughs> like you know. Um, but I, 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 I mentioned this is a breather episode. The episode opens with a big action-packed climate. We've got to take out the meteor, and then we're going to tack about our options for way too long, and then we're going to do the extremely obvious thing to take out the thing, and then it's going to fail, and then we're going to do the other obvious thing, and then it's going to fail, and then we techno-babble our way to victory. And it's kind of dumb, is what I'm trying to say. But I get the point, right? You want the action open to catch people's attention, and then you can go on with the actual episode. Bit of a bait-and-switch, but whatever. And then I see this little silvery particle thing going to the Enterprise, and I'm like, huh? <laughs> I remembered this episode. I, I mean, I've watched TNG many times, so usually I remember an episode before I actually dive into it. And I always do the behind-the-scenes stuff before I jump into the episode proper. So I noticed there was a big speech by Peter Allen Fields about the B-plot of this story. And I remember reading his, his thoughts here and going, there's a B-plot to this story? Like, I don't mean that as a joke or a meme or whatever. I'm not saying this for comedic effect. I legitimately could not picture what the B-plot was. I remembered Alexander. I remembered Loxana. I remembered the stupid bubble thing and the mud paint and the nude women. Woman, excuse me, singular. But I couldn't remember anything about a B-plot. I'm like, what the hell? And so when I actually watched the episode and I saw the silver thing, I'm like, okay, that's got to be the B-plot. But it still didn't click. I couldn't remember. In fact, I decided to write down the exact moment in the episode when I finally remembered what the B-plot was. 25 minutes and 35 seconds in. Now, I'm, making the, I'm bringing this point up for a good reason. I have exactly uh, three notes about the B-plot, counting the note I'm reading right now which is that the B-plot is awful, boring, unmemorable, disinteresting, and terrible. In short, there's some weird parasite thing that hops on the ship. It starts eating a crucial metal on the ship, which we've never heard of before or since, and then it, fa it goes away after they resolve the issue. The end. It's not all that engaging. 
it's basically defeated by not quite technobabble, but basically nothing clever or interesting. The solution and problem are both unknowns that we've never heard of before. So it's just like, aha, all I need is a flugerblog, and I'll be able to defeat this flugatar, right? So that doesn't do anything. <clears throat> the There's a lot of logic problems in the B-plot. My favorite, and, I've, and I did actually remember this moment, because I've banged on about this point before in Star Trek. See, there's these things called the inertial dampeners. Those are um, the single most important and critical element to faster-than-light travel. No, I'm serious. Because if you decide to suddenly leap forward at a, at a ridiculous speed, um, you will be turned into jelly, to put it nicely, because, right? In fact, in some of the Star Trek novels, this is a plot point where they will sabotage a ship by turning off its inertial dampeners, and then the moment they go to warp, they all die. You don't even need to go to warp, actually. Sudden acceleration to even impulse speeds would be enough to flatten you into pancakes. Yeah. <clears throat> so the inertial dampers go out, and the very first thing Picard says is, drop out of warp. Uh, okay. And then he says, let's continue on impulse. And then they say, in 30 minutes we'll meet about this. Then they meet about this, and then immediately go to beaming the guy aboard. Now, this isn't the most nonsensical thing, but it means that they were probably seconds, if not less than seconds, away from picking this guy up. Because 30 minutes at impulse is a whole lot less than that at warp. And they were at warp, going to meet this guy to pick him up. It should have been a, um, we're sorry for the delay kind of a situation, because we were supposed to be here half an hour ago. That's never acknowledged, of course. Then they decide to keep going at impulse. And then later, they're suddenly at warp, and then they have to go... It just My point being, there's a lot of logical gaps in the B-plot that just basically do the opposite of what those little details that I like usually do for me. It takes me out of it completely. Now, that being said, there is one pretty cool thing about the B-plot. Towards the end, when they turn on life support, they're all sweating and, and covered in, in sweat, right? That actually makes a huge amount of sense to me. Now, I could be incredibly wrong about this, and I'm looking forward to people in the comment section saying how wrong I am about this, but considering how difficult it is to um, manage heat in space, I imagine a lot of the life support systems are designed to manage the heat production the ship is producing. You can't tell me a ship with that kind of reactor and the kind of power output a Galaxy-class ship has isn't generating an inordinate amount of heat. And it's not being properly dealt with or cycled or shunted or whatever. So everyone's just kind of slowly melting. In fact, they'd probably burn up if it actually kept going on to this not even too awful longer. Just a nice little detail I want to mention. The last thing I wanted to mention, though, I mentioned this thing from Peter Allenfield. Oops, excuse me, moving things out of the way. I'd be lying if I said it didn't bother me somewhat. I'm sure it bothered Michael and Rick Berman as well. But once we got into it, the story seemed to work all right. It's true, though, that the so-called dreaded B-story was, in this case, something that almost didn't belong. Almost. <laughs> because we wanted to develop a personal story as much as we could, rather than flesh out the convenient Jeopardy story. We felt this particular instance, even though the B-story was valid and researched just as carefully as the others, <clears throat> the personal story should take precedence. We don't want to do them all like that. This is a science fiction show, and science is fun. But in this case, it was the personal story that was more important. Now, I mentioned that. 
this is there's nothing stating this absolute, but considering some of the things that Rick Berman also said about this, as well as several other people, it seems pretty clear that the B story was basically shoved in artificially by one of the producers. I'm not naming names, because I don't know. But someone, someone on high said there has to be a B plot and it has to be science fiction-y. Allow me to go ahead and say something that has actually got me a lot of flack over the years. Star Trek does not need a science fiction element in every episode. Ignoring the fact that they go on the holodeck in this episode, let's and ignoring the fact that they cover an alien culture in this episode, twice, the fact of the matter is the B plot and its sciency thing is, in my opinion, completely unnecessary. And as for my evidence, I point to the episode "Family," or how about the episode we just covered, "The First Duty"? For God's sakes! Now, don't mistake me. I'm not saying a science thing is wrong. After all, cause and effect, one of my favorite episodes of all time is basically just a sciency episode. And yet, I feel like the mandate is the problem here. There has to be. So it didn't develop naturally. Now, I'm banging on this point. I keep saying that recently. Sorry, I've been talking to a friend of mine again for first time in a while, and he's British, so... Um, <clears throat> he, he's... I'm trying... God, I can't come up with another phrase. I am harping, there we go, I'm harping on this point so much because this episode is actually surprisingly good. Like, I, I was surprised by how much I liked it, or at least half of it. But every time the B-plot reared its ugly head, it's like being offered a pretty decent drink of whatever drink you prefer, in my case, you know, seltzer water, and a cup of tap water straight from the tap. Right? And you're not allowed to drink the drink you want unless you have occasional sips of the, tap, the, the completely tepid tap water. Now, it's not bad, and there's so much worse, but it's just immensely boring and doesn't fit at all and might as well not even be there, which is my point. More to the point, I didn't math this out, I should have, but the A plot takes up an enormous amount of screen time. The B-plot has a much, much smaller amount of time dedicated towards it. Uh, let's see, so we've got the scene where there, there's occasional flashes of the goop, but otherwise they've got the scene where the inertial dampers fail, which I've already complained about. Then they've got the scene where they start to figure out what's going on because they find the goop for the first time. Then they've got the scene where they're like, okay, here's our solution, and we're going to go and get to this asteroid field. And then there's the scene where they go to the asteroid field, and that's it. Otherwise it might as well not even be there. Oh, I know. You, there's a lot of counter-arguments. And I'm actually curious to hear your guys' as if you have any, you know, good ones or valid ones, because there's probably something I'm not considering here. But the fact of the matter is, it really hurt the episode for me. But enough about that. Let's talk about the main point of the episode. Troy is trying to counsel Worf on taking care of Alexander. And she comes up with the idea of a contract. Now, I've actually seen this done in real life before a couple of times. The idea of doing a contract as a child-parent sort of a thing. Uh, whether that's a good idea or not is, of course, up to opinion. But I've seen it done reasonably well before. Because the whole point is that it is a both-directions thing. It can't be, you must do all these things. It has to be, we must do all these things. Now, I've seen other methods to try and teach a child about the concepts of responsibility and what that means. In fact, there's this really wonderful point. Uh, I, I believe both Luxana and Deanna actually make this point in separate ways. It's about doing what you have to do in order to do what you want to do. 
This is a concept that I've tried to introduce to a couple of kids that I've taken care of in my life several times, including the little one. You know, we have to clean your room. Once we're done cleaning your room, we'll, be, we'll have plenty of space and open stuff to work with, and we can go ahead and play Legos. And that's exactly what happened, and it was fun and awesome. So I look at this like, okay, I'm kind of with that. What I find interesting is Worf is portrayed very particularly in this episode. I don't think he's fully Worf. I think Mr. Fields had a couple issues writing him. But I do think he did a decent job of it, because Worf is pretty tolerant the most time even though he's kind of in the wrong. Because the problem is Worf doesn't really know how to be a parent. That's the reason I say it works out, though. Because Worf doesn't know how to be a parent. This is still relatively new to him, don't forget. And this is something that is completely alien to him outside of his experience. He's still learning as he goes. So it makes sense that he would be having these issues. He, doesn't, he legitimately doesn't understand some of the problems he's having because it's something that's never even occurred to him. Speaking personally, when I first started having to take care of the little one full-time for a brief period there because of circumstances and issues, that was a whole new experience, so one I was completely unprepared for. You know, intellectually, you could think about those things and kind of be like, okay, yeah. But once, once you're in the moment, it's completely different. So I kind of feel for Worf in that, even though he was incorrect. And I do have to point out in his defense, he does make the effort consistently. There's no denying whatsoever that Worf cares. Duh. And Worf is obviously willing to try and reach out to his son, not merely be reached out to. He's a little cantankerous even when he does that, but you can kind of see why at least. In short, I'm kind of defending him, but not really, because I've heard some people really come down on Worf in this episode. That being said, he has this line about bribery when it comes to the contract thing, which I really don't agree with. You know why? Because Worf, of all people, should understand the concept of earning something, which is what this is really about. It's even a very base concept to explain. I'll use an example I myself have used in the past. If you put the time and effort and work into cooking, then you now have the food to eat. If you don't put the time and effort into cooking, you don't. It's a very simple concept. Now that actually can be expounded into much more complex concepts. The idea that, you know, someone else could do the cooking, your parents or your friends, or going to a restaurant or ordering out or whatever, or maybe reheating something from the fridge. But the core concept actually still remains even when the complication or the, the calculation is com complexified. That's a word now. Because someone still had to put the work into cooking. Someone still had to do in order to get... And that's the base concept. And that's what I tried to explain to her. And so this idea should have been probably expanded upon a little bit more with, you know, Alexander. But, of course, Worf, he's new at this. And I get it. Anyways. <clears throat> then there's a bit where Troy says, it may be hard to imagine right now, but eventually most children really come to appreciate their parents. I don't actually know how true that is. I appreciate my parents. I mean, Lord Dad and Lord Mom are awesome. And Lord Mom is the most amazing thing ever, and Lord Dad has been very supportive and helpful for you know, my whole life. I will admit I probably didn't appreciate them as much until I got into about my 20s. <laughs> I mean, I loved them, but, you know. But that being said, I do have to admit that line amused me because the very next thing is, and here's Loxana. You can almost hear the wah, wah in the background. So then she admits that she's marrying into royalty. 
One of the things I've actually wondered for some time is how much of a blue blood thing there is in Star Trek. It's not acknowledged all that often. Usually if there's someone of royal blood or someone of a royal lineage, it's one member of one family from one species from one planet. But they never talk about royalty when it comes to things like any of the major powers or any of the larger scope things. Like, Loxana herself claims to be from a degree of royalty, the fifth house of Chalice, blah 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 Do the Betazids still, Betazoids, excuse me, still practice any kind of nobility? Is there any kind of lineage when it comes to anything? When it comes to, it's, it's just a weird curiosity point, something that's almost never discussed. Given the whole, you know, we've evolved and developed thing, I could kind of see why they would want to push away from nobility, since the overwhelming presentation of nobility in real life and in fiction is the bad guys <laughs> and with reason but I'm just curious because she flat out mentions this and I get the impression this guy is also a member of the Federation I don't know <clears throat> I'm going to skip over the next scene but don't worry I, there's a reason for it so then we move on to the Parallax Colony I'll go admit I don't like the Parallax Colony but I do appreciate it. This is a pretty coffee situation, I think. I'm curious if any of you guys out there like the colony and how it's presented. I do have to give credit for Richard James, who's the visual designer for it, who apparently, by all accounts, just went nuts with it. He was told to make a whimsical thing, and that was the word he used. And it shows. <laughs> now, I don't like whimsical. That's just not my thing. I prefer blacks and whites and greys. Endless steel empire conquers. I'm not a whimsical guy. <laughs> I don't get into, you know, ah, and everything's flighty and fancy and weird. Not my thing. And that's been true ever since I was a kid, too. There's nothing new. But I do have to, now that I'm an adult, I can actually appreciate the sequence a lot more than I could as a kid. As a kid, I just saw something I didn't like. Now I can see the amount of effort and work that was put into it. Oh, sure, there's still some problems because they're still on a set. But they do a good job with a lot of it, and they do vary things up pretty well. I'm actually pretty impressed with it. Uh, there's also a lot of little details, like the edible cups. They never really draw too much attention to them, but you can tell they can eat the cups that they're drinking from. Nice touch. Um, you know, the idea that the, the, the juggled balls that he takes care of are actually edible as well. Um, the idea of the guardian wind spirit, which is, which is trying to make sure that only people of a certain disposition can get in, but not really. It's not actually a defense mechanism. There's just a lot of little details that work for me, and I think it actually helps elevate the whole scene. Well, scenes, because there's like three there, uh, substantially. I do have to wonder if a naked woman who is wearing paint and some extremely precisely placed pieces of uh, material is appropriate entertainment for a kid. But that's just me. Bring, I, I just, it's just such a weird scene, and I know, I know, I'm a prude, whatever. It's just, why, why include that? Bring out the entertainment. And I'm like, okay, sure. I did have to, I do have to admit, I laughed several times on this episode. Notably when Morph popped the bubble. So, this is when I have to mention something. Loxana and Alexander work surprisingly well together. Now, it's not like that's a huge surprise. Majel Barrett is a good actress. She knows what she's doing. The kid, not as much. I, I've never been a big fan of any of the actors who played Alexander over the years. No offense intended. You know, child actors, blah, blah, blah. We already covered that. But as I mentioned earlier, Alexander serves as a good 
orbital character to Luxana herself. And she manages to come across very motherly to him in a good way. And I don't mean, I, I guess that's probably a wrong word for that. Because usually when fiction portrays someone motherly, they go into an extreme to try and showcase, you know, the, the mother bear instincts or the, you know, maternal instincts of care and consideration. In this case, what we get from Loxana is someone who actually comes across as very human. I know, I know, she's a betazoid, but you, do you get my point? She comes across as someone who obviously has her own issues, and that gets in the way. But then she realizes that, and then she tries not to let that get in the way. But she still cares about her mentality, because she still believes in the ideology she believes in. But she doesn't want to poison the kid's mind, especially since she's not even related to him. And so she's not even part of his upbringing. But she does obviously still care about him, and she does have some excuse me, maternal instincts going towards him. So she wants to help him, but at the same time she wants to encourage him, but she doesn't want to go too far. And there's a lot of surprising nuance in her portrayal. I say surprising because usually that kind of dynamic isn't really shown in these, uh, these kind of episodes. And to be perfectly blunt, this is the first time we've seen that kind of nuance from Loxana Troy, at least chronologically speaking. As I've mentioned before, over in DS9, she was pretty good as well. And she'll be good again the next time she shows up in TNG. At least I think she will. I guess we'll find out when we get there. But then we have to admit that one of the nice little tidbits is that Alexander is earnest to the point of almost rude. But she is very honest in return. And that's why this is really a Luxana vehicle. She has two lines. Both of them are with Alexander. and or Two scenes, excuse me. And both of them are gold. Just gold. They help sell the episode for me. Because one of them is when she talks to him about it's not fair, is it? This is earlier on in the episode. This is right before they go to the colony for the first time. It's not fair, is it? The way she says that is wonderful. And then later on, after the colony scene, she gives a speech. Alexander's basically asking, you know, why are you trying to get married? Why are you doing this? And she says, I'm alone. I'm not going to repeat the whole speech. It's a great speech. You know, the, the whole, I, I, I am... <laughs> when you get to my age, you can't just pick and choose anymore. You have to take what you get. I didn't know this, but Majel Barrett lost Gene Roddenberry four months prior to the filming of this scene. And I cannot help but feel that at least some of that was coming through in her performance. Because she sounds exactly like she's not acting, like she is speaking from experience. It adds an amazing human element and tr tremendous gravitas to the way she speechifies to this Klingon kid. Excuse me, three-quarters Klingon kid or whatever. And I just wanted to praise that, because I think that's why this episode works for me at all. What, what, what buoys it up is Loxana herself and the way she acts around Alexander. Go figure. Never thought I'd say that one. So, I didn't really mention the minister guy, played by the incredibly amazing Tony Jay. Now, Tony Jay is awesome, amazing, and wonderful. And what's funny is he manages to be good in this, too. You could tell the man took this as a serious bit. I, I almost imagine the director, uh, uh, Colbe, actually reached out to him and said, okay, you're the straight man to the gag. Go. <laughs> and Tony J was like, I can do this. <laughs> like, I can just picture that scene. Because Tony J does a wonderful job of portraying the pillar 
of 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 absolute against which everyone else reacts. And of course he is appropriately flummoxed and flustered and you don't understand we have our procedures and protocols we have to follow. But he manages to to add the necessary oomph to that so it doesn't sound like he is part of the joke. He says with sincerity there are protocols that we have to follow in these matters. It is very important to me and to my people that we do this the proper way. And he managed to say that so sincerely it sells it for me. This leads to the scene that I, and I wrote down a note here. said, this is weird. And that's all I wrote because I knew what it would mean. Usually when Loxana disagrees with someone, I'm like, Ugh, up to now. Because she's just kind of being obnoxious. But then there's a scene where Loxana is trying to get away to be with Alexander. And the agent's against her, and the minister's against her, and Troy's against her, and Worf's against her. And I'm with her. For probably the first time in Star Trek history, chronologically speaking, I'm completely on her side here. Not only is she being pretty reasonable and very understanding and ultimately just trying to... Again, it's that human element. She does want to, sh to showcase good values, even though she wants to escape from this, but obviously she's not just going to trust herself to run away, so she has her responsibilities, so she'll try to compromise... And she does try to compromise over and over and over with everyone else present. And they're the ones who are steamwalling for once. And so as she's just getting pressed in and pressed in by the steamwall, she finally just leaves. Now, I get that the scene was probably played for comedic factor, but all I see is a woman who is doing her damnedest and no one else is trying as well. And it works surprisingly well for me. This is a good time to mention that Mr. Colbe, uh, Winrich Colbe, the guy who directed this episode, mentions that he had, he worked great with Barrett. That the two of them just clicked immediately. I wonder if that's why we were able to see this performance from Miss Barrett in this episode. Because, as I've said before, she's kind of been obnoxious up until now, chronologically speaking. And all of a sudden she's a person. Just food for thought. And then, of course, the episode closes out on a pretty awesome note. You're just supposed to sit here? <laughs> yeah, that got me. I'll admit it. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts, guys. I'll see you next time.